Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Delicious Podcast with me, Jilly Smith. And this week I'm in a tree house in West Sussex with the delightfully named Isabella Tree, the author of Wilding, which has been hailed as one of the most important contributions to the debate about where and how we get our food and our relationship with the land. Now, we first met Isabella a few episodes ago when she was championing the role of grazing animals in a debate called Can Veganism Save the Planet? But now we're looking out over the hundreds of acres of former Sussex farmland, which she and her husband, Charlie Burrell, have returned to the wild, and where only last month a pair of white storks became the first to breed in the wild in Britain since the 15th century. And as she tells me about the recipe that sums up their extraordinary story, we spot a beautiful red stag just below us. I ask her how old she thinks he is. I don't know. I would say so three... No, just maybe four or five, actually. He's got a tremendous sort of rack of antlers on. Mm. But um, they grow very fast down here in the, in the south. You know, we're used to seeing stags in, in the north of England or in Scotland where they have, you know, can be very old. And actually, a royal is, is usually the oldest, you know, stag there is. But here, they, they, they grow these almost sort of bizarre to us, look, look very extravagant mm. rack of horns. And he's just nibbling on some... Uh, dog rose i think now this is your home and this is we're going to be talking about what tastes like home for you you've chosen a recipe that helps you tell your story of this place but this is your home you've lived here for uh since the 1980s so gosh i mean however long that is what's that (laughs) about 30 years 35 years or something that's when um charlie my husband inherited from his grandparents so it was about 1985 and it was literally, if you're looking out from here, all this would have been arable. So ploughed, every inch of the land that could be ploughed was ploughed. So we're now looking onto, to me, what looks like um, African thorny scrub. Mm. Mm. But in, say, 2004, 2005, this would have been a field of maize. Mm. So it's amazing, literally amazing, what's <laughs> happened in, in less than 20 years, really. Yeah. Let's talk about that recipe that tastes like home. Oh, well, I've chosen a steak, pure and simple. I've chosen an old English longhorn steak from specifically one of our um, free-roaming old English longhorns. And that, to me, epitomises just the, the the whole kind of raison d'etre of this, of this project, because... If we didn't have those free-roaming animals here, this amazing sort of thickety, thorny scrub would disappear in, say, 20, 30, 40 years' time and become closed canopy woodland, which is very species-poor. So what we have here right now is something that is so biodiverse that we've got, you know, some of the rarest species in, in Britain. We've got turtle doves and nightingales, we've got lesser-spotted woodpeckers, peregrine falcons, you name it, we've got them here. 
And that is because we have these free-roaming animals driving the system. So they're browsing, they're disturbing the vegetation, they're churning up the soil. Their impact with vegetation creates this kind of battle, if you like, between animal disturbance and vegetation succession. And that creates the margins where all life lives. So without these free-roaming animals, we would not have such a successful conservation project. Now, you're often brought out to make that argument for grazing animals in the context of the rise of veganism. We met on that University of Sussex when when you were on that panel with um, a number of different vegans. First of all, how was it to be on a panel with a bunch of people who were really on the other side of the fence? I'm I'm full of admiration I think for what the what the sort of vegan movement is doing. It's really making us think about what we eat and that is hugely important. We just cannot take what we eat for granted. Um and what they're doing to make us understand about the horrors of factory farming is absolutely right up there in mm. my books mm. about about what we should be doing. And we should certainly not be feeding grain to animals. It's it's unethical, it's unsustainable, it's unhealthy for the animals, and it's very unhealthy for the people that eat those animals. So on every level, it's unethical. But we have to recognise, I think, it's much more nuanced and complex, the argument about whether we should be allowing animals' livestock at all on our land. Because livestock animals have been here for millennia, for for. for literally for millions of years mm. they've co-evolved with our vegetation and they are a part of the nutrient cycle so if you're trying to restore soil for example and we know that our soils are in a critical condition we know that there's 60 harvests left globally before our soils probably run less out by now. probably yeah. less by now certainly in places like the fens in england mm. we've probably only got about 15 years left in mm. some places before there's no topsoil in which to grow anything yeah. So even vegans are going to be stuffed. So we have to restore our soils. The the fastest, most efficient and the natural way to do that is with free-roaming animals as part of that mix, grazing animals. You have the dung um, and the urine that um, is pulled down into the soil by dung beetles and all the other invertebrates that recolonize the soil. They recolonize the soil with nutrients and minerals and bacteria. And that kick-starts the whole thing again, starts starts the, the microbiota in the yeah. soil, start aerating the soils, and you get life back into the soils. Yeah. Worms are very good things. The worms are amazing <laughs> things. A keystone species. Darwin knew it, and yeah. we'd forgotten it. And so we really have to look at systems that are going to involve allowing pasture as part of the rotation again, just like we used to mm. before the Second World War, before we became chemical addicts. Mm. Um, we've got to remember how to rotate our crops and allow the land to be fallow. And if it's going to be fallow, it then needs to be grazed. And that enables, as I say, the, the soil to be restored using dung and urine and the, and the trampling of the hooves of the animals um, compa- you know, gets the, uh, the vegetation back into the soil. Um, so if you're going to do that, then it makes sense that you're eating those animals because obviously you can overgraze. Mm. It's a fine balance between undergrazing and overgrazing. Um, you can do mob grazing as well in the kind of Allen Savory holistic management type of thing yes. where you're moving large numbers of animals on so that the land behind them can recover. 
and um, then the chickens peck at the, the chickens, cow pats exactly, and the worms and exactly. the beetles come in. Yes. Absolutely. So you've got the Joel Salatin sort of system where you know it's a it's a kind of it's a caravan of yeah. different species of animals that are moving through the landscape, all adding to the nutrients in the soil. And the other thing I think to remember is that um, while we've been producing more and more food. Um, our crops have actually become less and less nutritious and that's because we're just putting chemicals on the land so we're putting you know um, nitrogen phosphorus and potassium basically that's it yeah let me just ask you i mean we're here in your land you can you can do anything you like with it although you have had some pretty horrible stuff from the neighbors who who bring their dogs here to walk and they're not very happy about you not keeping it very tidy it's the victorians you say who are responsible for our idea of what the countryside should look like I think it is. I think it's that sort of Victorian obsession with tidying up that that they have a lot to answer for. But also, of course, it's the first time that we, you know, with the Industrial Revolution, that we had the machines that could clear things up for us very easily. So, you know, before the Victorian era, it would be very, very difficult to clear this land, to get rid of this scrub. And yet, you know, once you have the machines, you could go through with those big machines that they have in the Forestry Commission, could go through this field in, you know, in half a day and turn it back into a a workable tilth, get rid of all that scrub. So once they had the means at their disposal, I think, you know, we became ever more obsessed with being neat freaks. Exactly. And that is one of the problems of modern day farming. With the rise of agrochemicals, you know, farmers have an opportunity to play with all sorts of ideas of how farming might be. And in somehow doing so, they've lost literally the plot. I think so. I think it's it's we, we can't, you know, blame the farmers. It's the system. Um, that is driving the farmers to do certain things. It's really subsidies which where we went wrong. Mm. It's paying farmers to uh, to produce year on year without letting the land rest. To uh, plant, you know, specifically crops like oilseed rape, mm. um, maize. Um, it's it's the whole skewed system which is geared towards arable. Um, no matter where you are, whatever land you're on, and however detrimental it is to that soil what can the delicious listener take out from this i think absolutely um we should support uh farmers who have high welfare standards um, but particularly farmers that are organic and particularly farmers that um, produce meat that is purely pasture fed beware of the label grass fed because that means that an animal can be fed on grass for um, 50% of its life, but the rest of the, its life could be fed on grain or it yeah. could be finished on grain. Yes, and that phrase finished, you say, well, it can actually undo all the good of the previous year's grazing. Yes, yeah, so you could have an animal that has spent most of its life out at pasture, but they will fatten it up for even just six weeks of its life towards the end when they want to fatten it up for before slaughter. And that six weeks on grain will change the fat. Exactly. So people should just go to their butcher or their farm shop and ask for for pasture pasture fed. And it can be specifically if it's if it's um, accredited by the Pasture for Life Association Mm -hmm. and Um, the Soil Association. And Soil Association organic is always fantastic too. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go back to that recipe of yours. The meat that you're talking about the organic meat has so many different nutrients in it that you wouldn't find in supermarket meat tell us a little bit about the health benefits of it well again this is organic and pasture fed and so it's proven with the there have been state uh, reports in the states and uh, independent reports in the uk as well both verifying that the fats that animals put down when they're pasture fed and organic 
are high in this amazing substance called conjugated linoleic acid, CLA, which is one of the highest anti-carcinogens, so one of the highest um, cancer-beating agents mm. in nature. But it's also the, the, the fats that these animals put down is also very high in omega-3, which is very difficult. for We have to eat that ourselves. We can't produce it as mm-hmm. human beings, so we have to eat that. And that is crucial for brain development and for heart um, uh, uh, health and, and, and all that sort of thing. But it's very important to have um, omega-3 and omega-6 in the right ratio, again, that we can metabolize easily. Mm-hmm. So quite often, I think, in a vegetarian or a vegan diet, it's too high in omega-6, and that comes from vegetable fats. And we're beginning to realize that actually too many vegetable oils, too many vegetable fats in our diet are also bad for us. Mm. We need to have this balance of omega-3 and omega-6. Yeah, so for you it's less but better, plant-based diet, Absolutely. but good meat less often. Absolutely, eat less meat, but be really careful about where you, where you, where you choose it. Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to serve with this fantastic steak of yours? Well, I think because it's it's almost like gilding the lily. So I think it's really uh, it has to be cooked absolutely beautifully. So um, it, it it and rested. So um, you have it sort of I like it pink in the middle and rested for five or um, even ten minutes afterwards, so that the juices go back into the steak. Hugely important. But I would serve it with in the winter um, some um, fresh horseradish from the garden. So make a horseradish cream. Um, and then uh, in the spring, I mean, all night now, some a lovely salsa verde, and, and perhaps throw in a little bit of um, wild garlic ransom in there with it. Thanks for listening to the Delicious Podcast. Next week, I'll be learning how to cook like North London Greek chef Theo Michaels. Don't forget to rate and review the Delicious Podcast and follow its adventures with the hashtag the Delicious Podcast. I'll see you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 